2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what the Word of God has to say. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the question I want you to consider with me as we start today is this. Is there something wrong with your body? Is there something not working right? Is there something diseased? Is there something dysfunctional? Have you injured yourself? Is there something wrong with your body? Now, though there may be a few who would not admit it, the answer for all of us, old and young, is yes. If we were to take the time, we don't have this kind of time, and go pew by pew, row by row, and have each of you list all the things that are hurting, that are dysfunctional, that are diseased, that are broken, we'd be here until next week. And probably by the time we got done with the last person, we'd have to start again with the first one because there'd be something else they wanted to add to the list. Is there something wrong with your body? You may use a device this morning to assist you in overcoming the disability. You may have uh, a device that's helping you recover from some type of injury. Others may be suffering today with physical or mental uh, dysfunction. Some, it may be obvious what you're dealing with. Some of you may be dealing with things that cannot be observed or seen by others. Depending on the severity of your suffering caused by your injury or your disability or your disease, you may also have an, 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 an additional suffering of depression and despondency as you realize that your life has changed or that you're never going to be what you were before your injury or your disability. Our passage today is focused on, Paul is dealing with the question of our bodies, these tents, these dwelling places, and what hope do we have in them, and what is the gospel's answer to our bodies that are being destroyed, that are falling apart? 
Last week, we celebrated Resurrection Sunday, and I, I shared with you last week that the gospel at its most basic are these three things. Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. And you may be familiar with the, with, the, with the gospel testimony that when Jesus rose, it was important that the, the testimony of the disciples was that he rose physically. So you may remember some of the, 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 the testimonies are that Jesus invited one of his disciples, Thomas, to touch him, to physically touch him and see that his wounds were real. There are other testimonies where Jesus asked for food to eat. Those are not just random, unimportant details. Those are details that communicate to us by the sovereignty of God that Jesus did not rise to some spiritual, ghostly resurrection. No, he rose physically. His body physically died, and he physically rose again. That's what gives you and I the hope, because Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, that you and I will rise again too. That we will rise again to bodies that are no longer under the curse of sin. Our passage this morning does not ignore the difficulties that we experience in the flesh. My word for you today is not that whatever you're dealing with, whatever difficulties you have are not a big deal, just get over it. That's not the word today. In, in fact, it, it teaches us that even though there is great suffering and difficulties in these bodies, there is purpose, there is design in our infirmities. The weakness and the dysfunction of our bodies remind us that our bodies are under the curse of sin and point us to the greater promise of God in the gospel. One of the dangers, so if you're a young person today and, and you're hearing me talk about bodies not working and you're thinking he's just talking about old people. One of the dangers of youth is when your bodies are most resilient and most strong and most healthy the danger there is you put too much confidence and hope in your physical strength and your physical ability. But before you old folks get too prideful that you don't struggle with that anymore, uh, the, the, one of the dangers of advanced age or infirmities is when your bodies are most weak and feeble, one of the dangers is to become overly focused on your inability and physical dysfunctions. Oh, woe is me. I can't. I'm too weak. I'm too feeble. Those sort of things. Not calling us to an arrogant pride in our strength, and neither is this passage calling us to just wallow in our infirmities. Whether you are old or young, healthy or sick, strong or weak, you should give every moment, every bit of thing that you have mentally, physically, spiritually, you give everything you have for the pleasure and the glory of God. Even while we long for the day when God's promises are made full and you are set free from the frailty of the flesh. There's much to say in this passage, but I want us to see two big main points this morning. Number one, that the sufferings of this world are temporary. So whatever infirmity you're dealing with today, there is hope in that it's just temporary. And then secondly, 
your infirmities, your weakness today is to give you an eternal perspective. So live presently in the weakness, in the frailty of your body with an eternal perspective of what is to come. In other words, live today for what is coming tomorrow. Let's begin with temporary suffering. So I, I see this. If I were to divide the, the passage in those two main headings, the first five verses deal with the temporary nature of our bodies. And in the first three verses, Paul makes very clear that there is no hope in the present bodies that we have. So he says in the first three verses, for we know. So in other words, he's saying this is a foregone conclusion. You all know this, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. There's no hope in the present. Our, our bodies are temporary. That's what he means by saying our bodies are being destroyed. Our bodies are temporary. It is not possible to preserve your bodies. They are all moving toward weakness. The hope of the gospel is the promise of glorified bodies. So the hope of the gospel is not that you just would make it a little bit better today. And listen to me very clear, clearly. One of the weakest testimonies, one of the most dangerous false teachings out there today is to focus the gospel only on the temporary reality of your flesh. Friends, even if you were able to avoid every disease and every dysfunction and every injury, the reality of it is you're still going to die. So there's no way to preserve the flesh. There's no way to keep these bodies in strength and in health. The promise of the gospel is not to escape from, but restoration to God's perfect plan. So it's interesting when you read this passage, God, Paul uses the word naked here, not in the sense of being with, without clothing. But what he means by being saying, he says, but not being found naked is not being without a body. He's speaking here of the relationship of body and spirit. The promise of the gospel is not that we would be disembodied. The promise of the gospel is that we would be, that in our bodies they would be glorified and no longer under the curse of sin. Now, this has a, uh, Paul is dealing with some philosophies that were part of the, the, the thinking of his day, but, but I want to help us connect not only with the first century, but th these philosophies still persist today. So in Greek culture, there was a, a belief that um, all matter was bad or evil, and all spirit was good. And so according to this philosophy, your body was bad, but your spirit was good. Thus, the ultimate desire was to set free your spirit uh, from your body, to become disembodied spirits. That was seen as the ultimate end. If you could get rid of anything that was material or of flesh, just become spiritual, that would be good. Many false religions, even today, take up this idea that the ultimate ex existence is one free from the spiritual. So... It's not just a, uh, a band from the 90s. Nirvana is the idea that from, from Buddhism and Hinduism, Sikhism, that, that liberation from the physical existence. In other words, those religions teach that the ultimate end, the, the ultimate pleasure, the ultimate goal is to spin off into a spiritual existence set free or liberated from your physical 
existence. But listen to me carefully. The Bible declares that everything that God has made and does make is what? Good. This philosophy continues today. And if you begin to listen for it, you'll hear it. I was listening even to this, this week of some discussion about where technology might lead us and some technologists and attempting to, to think about and, and hope, I guess that's the right word, uh, this ability to, to upload consciousness into, um, in, 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 into mainframes and, and be able to disassociate who you are with your body. Now, I, I think that denies the very created nature of God. I don't think that's possible, but it flows right out of this idea that the bodies must be bad. What's good is our minds, our spirit, and so if we could separate those two things, that would, be, that would be a good thing. But friends, listen to me. The biblical worldview is not that your bodies are bad in their created intention. God created us, therefore we were created good. What has corrupted our bodies, what has corrupted this world is sin. The whole world is under the, the curse of sin, and the hope of the gospel is to restore us to the good creation that he intended us to be. Jesus rose bodily to a glorified body. The promise of the gospel is that through salvation, these old tents that are corrupted by sin will pass away and God will give you a body that is glorified. So Paul says our hope is not that we would be found naked. In other words, our hope is not that we would be some disembodied spirit floating around in the, in the universe with no purpose or plan or physical connection. No, Paul says we desire for bodies, just bodies that are glorified by the power of Christ and his resurrection. The hope of the gospel is not to be released from being embodied, but to be embodied in a body not under the curse of sin. So Paul teaches that our relationship with our present body is temporary. He uses that word tent or dwelling. He says, while we, in, in, in the first verse, he says, uh, for we know that this tent that is being, uh, is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building, see that contrast, from God. We're going from something temporary to something eternal. It is right and good to use your body for the glory of God and care for your body as best you can. Your body is a gift of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 tells us your body is the temple of God. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You're, you, you are commanded to control your body in holiness and in honor. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. The Bible tells us that we should exalt Christ in our bodies. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at, at all ashamed, but that with full in, uh, courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. It may be temporary. It may be passing away. It may be being destroyed, but you are not to treat your body with dishonor, disdain, or abuse. But neither are you to put your eternal hope in your body. It is growing weak. It is being corrupted and destroyed. And the Bible declares it will die. The frailty of your body is to point you to a better thing. 
the hope and the promise of the gospel. I think what Paul is teaching us here is to embrace the frailty of our bodies, that we would understand that there's no hope in the present tent. It is passing away, and that we should long for the glorified. So Paul uses the word groan in verse 4 to describe the experience of living in these bodies while longing for the glorified bodies that Christ will give us in heaven. Now, this is a moment where I think you, those of you who are more mature can give some encouraging or some helpful counsel to those of you who are maybe a little young on this one. There's groaning. Groaning happens more the older you get. Do I hear an amen? My granddad would groan. I'd say, are you all right? Yeah, just sometimes it feels good to groan. <laughs> sometimes you just groan. It's just, it hurts to get up. It hurts to sit down. It hurts to walk. Groaning is that, that sound that it emanates from us when, when there is a struggle, when there's a difficulty, when there's a hardship. The word that Paul uses literally means to groan or sigh as a result of deep concern or stress. The other word he uses is in verse 4 that I think is significant is burdened. That word there is to experience difficulty by burdensome and troublesome or troublous, uh, uh, troublesome obligations, to be burdened, to be troubled. The, the idea that Paul is communicating is that the weakness and burdens of the present point our attention and heart's focus on what God has done and is doing. In other words, he, the, the frailty of this body points us to the body that God is preparing for us for glory. This body is temporary. It's passing away. It's, it's being destroyed. The building that God is making is eternal and perfect. We ought to long to receive what God is preparing that is no longer under the curse of sin. And it's interesting in verse 5, it tells us that the promissory guarantee is the Spirit of God that fills every believer. Now, this is an important connection here. So, when you believe in faith on Jesus, you were saved. And the Bible teaches us that the Spirit of the living God indwelt you. Your spirit was transformed the moment you believed. And yet, you remain in the physical, frail, temporary, being destroyed body of your flesh. And so the promise of the gospel is even though your spirit has been renewed, Paul says the guarantee, the, the promissory note of this truth is that you are filled with the Spirit of God. And the fullness of the promise is that not only is your spiritual your spirit been renewed, but your body will be as well when Christ returns. Friends, this is the hope. Longing for the glorified it is the hope that this present reality is just temporary. A few years ago, um, I traveled to southwest Mexico with our local association as we were planting a church in a community called Atuiquillo. Now, when we were down there, the, the place where we stayed was uh, the only hotel in town. When we first saw it, we thought it was an abandoned building because nobody was staying there at the time. But, but we later discovered, no, it was, it was an active hotel. And the accommodations there were, were pretty basic. So the room had a bed in it with a mattress. 
And the only bed linens that there were was there was an old mattress, excuse me, an old blanket laid over the bare mattress and a couch cushion, like a fabric couch cushion, no pillowcase laid on top of the, uh, the, uh, the blanket. Now, now, for the most part, the building was clean, but I wasn't sure how long it had been that that blanket or that pillow had been cleaned. The bathrooms were functional and for the most part clean. They were down at the one end of the building. The way I would sleep every night is I took my hammock and I would lay my hammock as a barrier between me and the bare mattress and then I would use it to wrap around me. In fact, I laid it over the pillow as well so they at least knew where the things that were touching me at night had been and, and, and last time they had been, they had been clean. Now, when I stayed at that hotel in Atoyakio, I was happy to be there. But I was happy to be there primarily because I knew it was just a temporary place. I wasn't living there. There was something better for me back home. There was a hot shower waiting for me in Waycross, Georgia. Amen. There were clean sheets and, and, and all those sort of things. And so I was happy uh, to, to be there. I was comfortable even to be there, not because I loved the, uh, the accommodations, but because I knew they were but temporary realities for me and there was something better waiting for me at home. Friends, the, the body that we dwell today, we, we live in, like I lived in, in the hotel there in Atoyakio. We, we, we take care of it, we manage it, we, we, we tend to it, but we have hope in that it is not eternal for us. So we understand that these are temporary sufferings. But the second thing I want you to see is that even as we live in temporary uh, reality, we have an eternal perspective. Now listen to me carefully on this. Particularly those of you who, when I talk about your body's not working today, it's not an academic thought to you, it's a present reality for you. All of us, but especially those who are dealing with physical issues, must have an eternal perspective in these tents that we call our body. So in verse 6 he says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with God. So whether we are at home or away, we make our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul begins with a word about being encouraged. In fact, he says there in verse 6, we are always of good courage. In the, in the previous chapter, Paul referred to the difficulties, to the persecutions, and the sufferings of this world as, and this is his phrase, momentary light afflictions. Here again, Paul seems to be speaking positively about something that is difficult. So he speaks about the infirmities of our flesh, and he says, and we're always of good courage. In fact, he uses that phrase twice, to be of good courage. He writes in verse 6, and in verse 8, we are always of good courage. He specifically says that he is of good courage in the present body of the flesh. That's what he means when he says in verse 6, so we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. So he's not saying, I'm of good courage because somehow he found some way to disassociate himself from the body. No, he's saying, while I'm in this body, while I'm in this weak flesh that's being destroyed, we are always of good courage. Now, an incorrect 
reading of chapter 4 and this section of chapter 5 would be to think that Paul is saying to you, you should just put on a happy face to cover your suffering. Or, or maybe, as we sometimes say, fake it till you make it. So whatever is troubling you today, whatever is hard about your life right now, whatever is not working, just pretend like it's not and you'll be okay. That is not a, a correct reading of this passage. Paul is not saying you should fake it. He is not saying ignore the reality of the present suffering. Paul is recognizing that an eternal perspective changes how you experience the present suffering. That's the key here. An eternal perspective changes how you experience the reality of a present suffering. In all of his letters to the church, Paul often uses the word rejoice. In fact, if you want an interesting Bible study, go look up every time Paul uses the word rejoice in his letters to the church. And you'll find that in a large section of the time that Paul encourages the church to rejoice, or he says of himself that he is rejoicing, those, that word is often used in the context of suffering or difficulty. So just, a, just a, a sampling here. In response to persecution, that persecution isn't good, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the next chapter from where we are now, as sorrowful yet, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Those who preached Christ as an effort to afflict Paul. Yes, there were some who used the preaching of Christ to try to cause him difficulty. Paul says about that to the Philippians. What then? Only that in every way, whether in, 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 in um, pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Giving his life for Jesus. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In his service to the church and his suffering for the church, to the Colossians, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. This morning, uh, in our Sunday school lesson, we, we read from James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, where James calls, us to, James calls us to rejoice. His idea was the same, rejoicing connected to present sufferings. Now, Paul says in this passage, he would rather be present with the Lord than present in the body. I think every believer could say that. And particularly this morning, if your suffering is great, if your physical difficulties are great, you can identify with Paul saying, if I had my choice, if I had my druthers, I'd rather be present with the Lord than away from the Lord. But he says he is of good courage because his confidence is in the redemptive work of God. Brothers and sisters, do not be discouraged in your physical suffering. God is preparing for you a body unhindered by the curse of sin. Isn't that a good word? Don't be discouraged in your present disability. God is preparing for you a body unmarred, unhindered by the curse of sin. 
Brothers and sisters, do not be despondent when the news comes that an injury will not heal or you will have to live your remaining years with limitations. We've grown accustomed to a pill or a procedure fixing all of our ailments, and so there's something very discouraging when the word comes, friend, there's nothing we can do for you. This is your new reality. And there's a tendency, there's a danger for us to become depressed and despondent in that. Brother and sister, don't be discouraged and despondent when that news comes. These are only momentary realities. These are only momentary sufferings. These are only momentary light afflictions. These are temporary sufferings. In verse 5, Paul reminds us that the Spirit is the guarantee. Be encouraged. If you are filled with the Spirit of the living God, He has renewed your spiritual life. He will renew your physical life. In verse 7, Paul reminds us that these bodies that we live in, uh, that, 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 in these bodies, we will live in faith of this guarantee. So in the present body that we live, we live in believing faith. The guarantee is true that the promiser is faithful and that we will receive bodies that have been glorified. Verse 6 and verse 8, Paul calls you to believe in the promise, trust the guarantee, and live according to faith in God. This faith is what gives encouragement in the present. We, we spoke last week, do you believe the resurrection? Building on that, do you believe the promise? If you do, it gives you an eternal perspective, even when your present is difficult. So in the last two verses, there are, I think, if I could characterize them, they would be commands. So in verse 9, the command is be obedient with purpose. He says in verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, in other words, whatever your situation is, we make it our aim to please him. What are you to do while living in the flesh and longing for your glorified body? What are you to do? Are you to mark time? Are you to kill time and just wait? Just working out the clock until Jesus calls you home and you receive your glorified body? Does it even matter how you treat your body? There are some who says it does, doesn't. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do whatever you want to. This body's passing away. Does it matter how you live? See, having an eternal perspective changes your present. You live today according to the reality of your tomorrow. Verse 9 makes it clear that the hope of the gospel transforms how you live presently. So if we are present with the Lord, we live to please God. Well, that makes sense. But Paul also says if we're absent from the Lord, we also live to please Him. Whether here, whether there, or away, whether with the Lord or away from the Lord, our aim, our goal, our perspective is to live to please the Lord. We ought to be obedient with purpose. Recognizing the temporary nature of the present draws your heart's desire to live according to the eternal reality. So if you're healthy today, everything works perfect on your body, then the word here is live to please the Lord with your healthy body. In pleasure, things are going right and you're enjoying pleasure, live to please the Lord. 
But if you're in sickness today, whether it's a temporary sickness that you're pretty sure is going to pass soon or you've got news that your whole life has changed and the rest of your days will be characterized by an infirmity, by disease, by something not working, live to please the Lord. In suffering, live to please the Lord. In this life, live to please the Lord. For all of eternity, live to please the Lord. Be obedient with purpose and lastly, live now for what will be. So in verse 10, if there was a heavy moment, this would be it. Paul says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If verse 9 is a response to verse 6, verse 8 and 10 is a response to verse 9. There is coming a judgment. God will judge everyone according to what he has done. And notice what Paul says, in the body. There are two things to consider about this judgment. The first is the primary concern is the judgment of God over sin. Now listen to me carefully. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The cost of sin, the Bible says, is death, meaning separated from God from all of eternity. We, you might use the more familiar term of hell. Hebrews 6 tells us that all men will be judged. It says it's appointed to each of us once to die and then the judgment. And on the day of judgment, the only distinction will between the, be between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Matthew chapter 7 teaches, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus there teaches that there will be many on that day that will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. The only distinction on the day of judgment will be those who are in Christ and those who are not. So Paul makes clear in this passage, we live temporarily these bodies, we have the hope of eternity. And listen, friends, you need to understand the reality is all of us will be judged for what we have done in the body. So the first primary question is, have you in the body, have you responded to the offer of salvation through Jesus? Had your sins forgiven by his blood? And are you right with Christ? Are you in Christ? But I think there's a secondary issue here. The secondary concern is the pleasure of the Lord. Now, I don't mean secondary as in less than. I mean secondary in that you cannot be concerned with the pleasure of the, of the Lord until you've received the forgiveness of your sins from Jesus. So Romans chapter 8 says those who are in, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in other words, until you've gotten right with the Lord through salvation, this cannot be a concern of yours. But for those of you who know Jesus... Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your sin has been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Then the secondary question is, are we living to please the Lord? For those who are in Christ, the desire of your life is to please the Lord. Not to earn salvation, but to please the one who has saved you for all of eternity. Brothers and sisters in Christ, live today not in spite of the judgment of God, but in, in anticipation of the judgment of God. Believing in faith that Christ is coming again and living today in anticipation 
for tomorrow. This past week was an anniversary for someone who probably wishes we'd all forget. The names Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak may be familiar to you as the founders, the co-founders of Apple Computer. You may not be familiar that there at the beginning of that company was a third founder. Today, Apple Computer is valued at $2.61 trillion. Last January, it reached its high mark of about $3 trillion. So the name you may not be most familiar with is a, a man by the name of Ronald Wayne. He was the third co-founder of Apple Computer. On April the 12th, 1976, 12 days after signing a contract that made him a 10% owner of Apple, he sold his stake in the company for $800. 10% of what today is a nearly $3 trillion company for $800. Today, if he had just kept his stake in the company, he would be, well, he would be worth well over $200 billion. If you could just rub salt in that wound a little bit more. Wayne held on to the original contract he signed with Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. And in the early 90s, he decided to sell it. Thought it'd be of interest to some Apple fans. And so he sold that original contract in the early 90s for $500. A few years later, that contract sold for over a million dollars at auction. Now the question you have to ask is why in the world would Wayne give up stock that would, be, would have made him, if he had held on to it today, one of the richest men in the world for $800? From the perspective of today, it seems unimaginable. No one would give up $200 billion worth of stock for $800. Not today. However, in 1976, things were a little bit different. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were 20-year-olds with nothing to their names. They didn't own a house. They didn't have any money. They, all they had was a, a good idea and, 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 and some fanaticism about making it come to, to be. At that time, Wayne owned a home. He had owned businesses. He had some real assets, and he began to realize that if these two crazy people that he had just signed a contract with to go into business with, if this business of Apple Computer failed, when the, when, the, when the debtors came to settle the debts for the business, there was nothing to get out of Steve Jobs. There was nothing to get out of Steve Wozniak. So the assets they would come after would be him. He would be the one who was going to lose his house. He was going to be the one who would lose his business. And so he got afraid. And in 1976, he made a business decision to protect his assets and remove himself from the company. And this is what I suspect. I suspect that if you and I were advising him in 1976 what to do, we probably would have given him the advice to do exactly what he did. You need to protect your home. You need to protect your assets. You need to disassociate yourself from these two weird dudes who are talking about selling personal computers. If Wayne had known what Apple computer would have become... He certainly would have made a different decision, but Wayne made decisions in 1976 based on what he knew in 1976. 
He valued what was, and he could not see what would be. Now, here's the connection for us today. Paul teaches us that we are to live today, not according to today. We are to live today according to the promise of tomorrow. God has revealed to us in his word, given us his spirit as a guarantee, as a promissory note, that he's making all things new. That he's building for us bodies. Building not made with hands, but a building made eternal by God. And so Paul is calling us in chapter 5 to endure what is in hope for what will be. Today we dwell in tents that are weak and dying. But we are to be of good courage because of the glorious bodies we will receive according to the power The question for the gospel is always put to us. Do you believe? Oh, dear friends, live today, not according to today. Live today according to what will be tomorrow. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.